Happy Wednesday, everybody. This is Chaz Kalenda with another episode of Chaz Kalenda, Attorney at Law. Uh, Wednesday night means that we're here to discuss more legal and local issues of interest here in Rhode Island. And helping me tonight to, to discuss those topics is Coalition Radio Network King, owner, and uh, I believe self-described chief narcissist, uh, Pat Ford, who will be uh, joining us, me tonight to have this discussion. And Pat, I appreciate you joining me. Welcome hey, on Chaz Kalenda, attorney at law. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you a little bit faint. Uh, All right. I can't see you. How, how's that? Is that better? There we go. There we go. This is Here one of those. Go. This is this has the all uh, folks. I'm actually the one producing right now. There's gales of laughter in certain households across Rhode Island um, as I become the one. Thanks again to our producer extraordinary John Gabso, who is off site this evening. He managed to talk me through the impossible, which is to actually, I don't know, somehow make this all work. So I'm going to let you do the intro thing and I'm going to go out and uh Explore the world of social media so I can share your wisdom with the ocean state. How does that sound? That sounds fine. All right. Well, ha have at it. I, I think, you know, this is a, um, tonight we're going to go over, I guess, a couple of subjects, right? There's, there's things you want to talk about in terms of criminal law. Obviously, the tragedies, uh, I guess we'll get serious now because it, uh, it was, it's been a terrible week for the state of Rhode Island on just so many, so many levels. Uh, you know, at, at points heretofore thought impossible. Um, frame the conversation for us. What, what, what would you like to talk about first? Well, I did want to talk about the uh, tragic weekend and the uh, the violent weekend that we had in the, in the state of Rhode Island, specifically Providence and the surrounding communities. And, uh, and just what are our leaders doing for us uh, as Rhode Islanders, as citizens of Providence, Tuckett, surrounding areas to prevent this kind of behavior from continuing. Uh, I think that we've got a multitude of problems, which is continuing uh, contributing to those situations. And uh, unfortunately, we're in a situation right now in Rhode Island, and, and it's not really just Rhode Island. It's more of a, it's becoming more of a nationwide thing, as we've seen in other cities like Portland, Minneapolis, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, those types of cities where uh, this violence has just become commonplace uh, because of the lack of support amongst uh, those elected officials, appointed officials for, uh, for the rule of law and for the police departments. And I know before I get a lot of, uh, before I get a lot of uh, pushback on that, uh, you know, I'm the first person to say that you know, yes, I am, I do support the police. I do believe that they are uh, an important group that needs our support as a community as a whole, but I'm not against, uh, and I would certainly not advocate that they would be above the law. So, uh, you know, I'm certainly all for holding police accountable when they do things wrong, such as in the George Floyd situation in Minneapolis. But I also think that when you have a situation, when we have the police not receiving the support that they need, to do their job to keep everybody safe, uh, particularly uh, here in Providence that we've seen it from Mayor Alorza, 
we've seen it certainly from the Attorney General's uh, office, Peter Narona, who's basically made it his mission to prosecute police officers for anything that they do. Uh, we have police afraid to do their job, and it leads to situations where we have uh, people who have lost their lives in numbers that we haven't seen in Rhode Island uh, that I can think of in recent history um, to, uh, to, to bringing Providence in Rhode Island into a place where we're looking more like Chicago. Now, so uh, it, that, that's I, one of my, that, that's my biggest topic tonight. Right. And, and I guess this is, it's funny. You and I will probably engage in a little give and take on this uh, for folks who are, who may watch this show for the very first time. Uh, Chaz Kalinda is an accomplished attorney, criminal defense attorney and spent a number of years working as a prosecutor in the Rhode Island Attorney General's office and has tried many, many, many cases. Um, so this isn't your typical law program where you've got some very well-intentioned people, um, you, know, hy- you know, having a hypothesis, or you have a show dominated by people like me who, as I like to say, I am an expert, but I'm not an expert. And quite frankly, I try to play one, well, on radio and video. This actually is the real world as it's, as it's going to be explained tonight. And on one sense, if I could frame the conversation, you've, again, got Attorney Kalenda, who's got years and years of experience, um, has probably spent more time at crime scenes than he'd like to like, uh, and brings, uh, like I said, a real-world expertise to it. And then there's me, who's the civil rights and civil liberties fan, who probably represents the other extreme. I have a feeling the truth is, well, somewhere probably in the middle, probably closer to you. But I, I guess if we could start first with the incidents on Thursday night. Uh, very little information l- let out initially to the public. It took a long time. Rhode Island isn't used to this level of violence, quite frankly. From as sitting someone from afar who wasn't on the crime scene, did they appear to manage the situation in a way that you would that you would consider appropriate by and large as far as local police the local police i think did what they had to do uh unfortunately i think that the way that the whole situation was managed overall uh in the way that they related it to the public was was troublesome i mean they can't you know it seemed like some of our elected leaders were not able to call this what it was which was gang violence this was this was uh just pure acts of violence by groups who had no intention of following the law uh no intention of of obeying the laws that are out there and engaged in senseless acts of violence and you know we're trying we have a we have a mayor we have uh, local even some police officials local leaders trying to downplay this and use words euphemisms that were uh just just were not appropriate uh, you know, you're right. We have not been used to having these situations of mass violence in Rhode Island. And, uh, you know, maybe this is a new experience for a lot of these people. But, um, you know, it's something that we should not be we should not be unprepared for, given the state of the the, the nation right now. Right. In fact, we've I would almost say bizarrely, we've been largely spared. Um, at- we yeah, we certainly have been. So. You know, there's three sides to reporting on a on a criminal act like that. And, and, and again, much debate has been had about whether or not it was a mass shooting or if you come from where I do, whether or not it was a drive-by. I call it a drive-by. I don't call it a mass shooting. A mass shooting to me implies 
um, the acts of one or uh, one person typically in, acting alone, um, dental issues at stake, mass shooting like in Colorado, mass shooting, the types that we become familiar with in Newtown, places like that. Is that a, is that a fair assessment, attorney? Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think your distinction is a good one. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that it would be probably be more but more appropriate to say it probably this was a drive by uh, as opposed to a mass shooting event. I, I tend to agree with your definition on what that mass shooting event would be like. So, again, from the media perspective, because it seems like everything now is run by the media. <laughs> Guilty. Uh, you've got, you know, three extremes, if you will. You've got what the media would like to have done, which is, of course, uh, within moments of the incident happening, a guided tour of the crime scene, uh, hopefully with lattes at the end, uh, and in a full introduction to all the appropriate force involved, any suspects, a, a credit report on every suspect, as well as right. hopefully instantly live video of the act as it took place. Now, that's what we've grown to expect, isn't it? That's what we've come to expect by watching the news and reading all the reports and, and, and just have being in a cable news network type of world. Uh, that's what we've come to expect, but that's really not what we should be looking for when these events, when these types of events happen. It's just not realistic because a lot is not known at the moment of the event or within even hours sometimes of these events that, uh, that, that is that maybe it's not known for a reason. Uh, you know, during the, you know, there's an ongoing investigation. So, uh, you know, the, the way the media wants it and the way that it should be presented are usually at polar opposites of each other. Right. Now, then, of course, there's the police desire, which is the police walk out, and I'm being a little facetious here, one of the intrepid media types steps over the yellow tape and a mass arrest takes place and all the media people are taken immediately down to the ACI and told they'll have to wait till Monday when a judge comes in so that there's absolutely no media interference whatsoever. And then, of course, there's the truth, which is you're managing a complex crime scene here. Uh, I, I, from your perspective and your, your, your experience, without getting into maybe names and specifics, have you spent time on crime scenes and, and, and what evidence has to be gleaned from a, time, from a crime scene? And that, this one is particularly complex, you know, how many different weapons are the weapons there, shell casings, ballistics? I've seen enough CSI to, to get it. But what in the real world is happening in terms of the collection of data so that, you know, 30 minutes from now, or I should mean several weeks from now, when they, you hear the, the signature sound and that switches over to the prosecution? What, what do they have to do with that crime scene to get you data, information, and also maintain the chain of evidence so that there's an integrity associated with the information so that it'll stand up in court. Well, I have been at more crime scenes than I care to, you know, care to uh, remember. Some of them have been some of the more gruesome crime scenes that will always stick in my mind. Um, you know, I've been to crime scenes where there's brain matter on a, on a car and there's a person face down in his driveway, um, you know, with three bullet holes in the back of his head. So, you know, I, I know what the, I know what trying to manage those crime scenes are like. And, you know, the most important thing from a, uh, a law enforcement, a law enforcement perspective and from a prosecutor's perspective in those situations is to make sure that security of the crime scene is intact. So you've got to know who's going in and out of that uh, in and out of that scene. You have to keep meticulous records of 
who's there, what's there, what was seen by the first people on the on the on the spot. Uh, you have to make sure that this is there's nothing been contaminated in any way, shape, or form, because the first things that you usually find are probably some going to be some of the more important things. Uh, they may not be the the case breakers, so to speak, when you go to court, but um, you know there should be some buffer between the you know the the media and the initial um, the initial statements that are be, that are coming out from law enforcement because there's a lot of things that have to be done to make sure that crime scene is pristine so the evidence that is there uh, or the evidence that can be gathered within the first uh, the first response to that crime scene is pristine and can be related to the prosecutors as it goes forward. Now, again, we're centering on Providence. Uh, you currently practice criminal law uh, around the state, so you certainly have enough experience with literally, I would imagine, every uh, police department in the state of Rhode Island. Um, New Shoreham, I mean, actually, I have to say that the recently retired police chief of New Shoreham uh, during the whole corona crisis became a folk hero among civil libertarians when he insisted to the media that at a certain point he had questioned his guests on Block Island enough. He used the term guests and that they, uh, they had paid for privacy and they were titled it. But have you ever had to investigate a crime scene in New Shoreham, Block Island? I have not. That is one area I have not had to go investigate a crime scene. There, 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 uh, a lot there of the go. ones, yeah, a lot of the ones that, are, that, I've, that I'm aware of or that I was part of uh, involved uh, car accidents, uh, dr- driving under the influence for New Shoreham, but I did not have to go visit personally a crime scene in New Shoreham. So now... By the way, this is fascinating because, again, this is the real world. Let's talk about what happens at the crime scene, particularly in a, in a complicated crime scene like this. You know, you've got the area shut down. You've got the, the magic yellow tape. Uh, you know, you've got active first responders. In this case, I believe I believe it was eight folk, eight or nine folks that were actually wounded. Some of the people, I literally drove themselves in their, I'll use the term for sake of dramatic, dramatic uh, emphasis, bullet-ridden cars to Rhode Island Hospital. How, what do police, I mean, are the, is it like TV? Are the CSI people literally there, or are they parachuting in uh, from police headquarters, from the safety headquarters in Providence at that point? Well, the CSI people are trying to get there as soon as they can, as soon as the scene is safe, because the CSI people are not there to secure the scene. They're there to make sure they collect the evidence. So that mm-hmm. the the... The initial officers who arrive, detectives, uh, they're going to make sure that scene is secure before CSI gets in there. And Providence has, you know, its own unit, has its own mobile uh, unit of crime uh, detection unit that they bring out to these types of scenes. And uh, it, it's it's a situation where, you know, usually within that first maybe hour, in some cases more than that, but they're going to be looking for everything that you probably do see on these shows. They're going to be looking, especially in a shooting situation. If they find bullet casings, they're going to know they're, they're looking for a semi-automatic weapon because revolvers don't eject bullet casings. Uh, they're, they're going to look for things like bullet holes, uh, projectiles, uh, blood spatter. Uh, these are the types of things that they're looking for. Uh, and if, if people are coming and going through that scene, uh, they have the opportunity, you know, including police officers who have to be very careful uh, as they're investigating this. They're going to be looking for 
uh, these types of things to determine exactly what the sequence of events was, who might have been involved, where did those people go, you know, where, you know, who are the potential suspects? Who can we eliminate as suspects? Who was here? Who wasn't here? And then it, the whole the whole thing starts. Uh, you know, who had who had alibis? Who didn't have alibis? Who are the likely suspects? Who had motives? They're, that's where everything starts, like you see in the in the typical episode. You know, I don't think real life has a lot of the contraptions that you see on Law and Order or CSI, and that's where the fiction and reality kind of clash because we're expected to see those types of things. But uh, a lot of the, the legwork that's being done is, is pretty true to form what you would see on TV. Now, it, it, step back for a second. I would imagine the city of Providence has a fairly sophisticated um, crime scene team. Uh, do they? And is that true of all the states? Do, state, do, do the smaller towns rely on the state police or are the state police ever asked to come in, particularly in a situation like this? Absolutely. Providence does have its own very sophisticated uh, crime scene unit, uh, crime scene investigation unit, just simply because they have to. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the level of crime that they're facing in their city is different than, uh, you know, say, Hopkinton. But, um, you know, it's many times the state police are called in when you have a, a, a situation, maybe maybe not as violent as this one, but one that's beyond the capability. Uh, capabilities of a smaller department, the state police are called in with their uh, crime scene investigators to assist. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's there are times where uh, that's required under what what's known as the attorney general's protocol when there's a officer involved shooting, a death in custody, some, something along those lines. Right. State police re- are required to become involved. Right. Even in the case of a city like Providence, it's it's it yeah, is. Uh, e- you go ahead. I would say even in a um, even in the case of a city like Providence. Uh, yes, if it's one of those situations where the attorney general protocol applies, where there's an officer involved shooting, uh, where there's a death in custody, something along, even if there's even if the shooting did not uh, ultimately result in a death, if an officer discharges his weapon um, or his or his or her weapon, then uh, the attorney general's protocol kicks in, and usually the state police are required to become involved at that point. Right. Wow. Okay. So we, we've, it's a Thursday night now. It's, it's, you've got first responders on the, uh, on the site. Um, the, you've got media there. What can media expect? Generally speaking, even in a dramatic case like this, um, in terms of, um, uh, in, in terms of, uh, I don't know, access, what questions can they ask? And the media has every right to ask any question they want, but the, what's a, what the answers are likely to get is at this time, we are investigating an active crime scene. Uh, we have information that we can't release until we confirm certain details. It's usually the identities of people who may be deceased, uh, no pending notification to family members. Uh, There's a lot of things that the police are going to hold back, as they should, uh, at the initial stages. Um, As more and more comes out, you know, I believe it's the role of law enforcement, and I'm talking about the actual police departments who are the investigators, to 
provide the media with details that are not going to compromise the investigation, that are not going to compromise the identity or, or, or tactics, uh, law enforcement tactics that can be released to the media so they can understand the, the who's, the what, the what, and the what, the why's and the when's. Uh, basic information the media should be able to expect at first. Um, you know, where I've been pretty critical of uh, not necessarily the police, but law, uh, law enforcement in general, uh, particularly maybe the attorney general in this state, is when they're coming out with uh, statements almost immediately uh, about, you know, situations uh, and making, giving opinions about situations of what happens, how it happens, and what they can expect as a result almost sometimes uh, early on in the stages where, you know, it's always, it was always my understanding and uh, as a prosecutor and, you know, I'm sure some people will correct me if I'm wrong is that you don't say things during the course of the investigation that was going to prejudice your case. You don't give opinions. You don't give things that cannot be confirmed uh, or that are going to, um, that are going to have to be walked back later on down the line. And I think we've seen that in earlier situations. You had that unfortunate incident with uh, the, uh, the young man on the, uh, the motorbike uh, earlier uh, in 2020, where I think statements were made by law enforcement, the attorney general, that had to be walked back later on after a thorough investigation was done. You know, we were always taught as a prosecutor, you do your talking in court, you don't do your talking through the media. And in that case, court was not, never became involved because after the investigation, it was found that the evidence simply wasn't there to bring criminal charges. And I thought that was a pretty embarrassing moment for uh, the attorney general and law enforcement. So, I mean, it's it's a situation, it's a delicate balance because, you know, you have, you have the public who wants to know, the media who wants to know, um, and it's it's one of those situations where they're always going to be at odds with each other, and, 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 it, and nobody's ever going to be completely happy. Uh, you're going to have law enforcement uh, being, um, being overly cautious, hopefully, with what they say to the media. You're going to have the media asking all sorts of questions. Uh, about um, media asking all sorts of questions about you know the who, what, when, where, why, and how, and and that just like I said that just becomes a a, a, a given a, a give and take situation where nobody's going to be happy. And I'm glad I'm able to see you now, Pat. <laughs> Again, this is this is going to be one of those shows that's going to sound fabulous on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, so. At this point in time, and I, I may have missed a little bit of yours, but at this point in time, now, of course, medical attention is paramount. You've sure. got people who, in this point case who are near death, and you've got folks who have already transported themselves at, to Rhode Island Hospital. Uh, and by the way, as someone who, in order to get his daughters through college, worked a third job as a glorified, say, Lyft driver in Providence, there's no place quite like Rhode Island Hospital at about 10 or 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 in the morning. It's really everyone needs to go to Rhode Island Hospital uh, at, uh, at that time. So, you know, I, I guess the question is, how do you maintain the integrity of the statements that folks are getting? How do, how do you do that? Yeah, 
I think it's it's a delicate balance, and I don't think I don't think there's a right answer other than to you don't draw conclusions at that stage when you know, especially you have people being carted off in an ambulance at the moment, or you know, you're you're still trying to secure the scene. You're so early into that investigation, and it may seem like you know to to the casual observer or the media, it may seem like, well, this is obvious. This was a drive-by. So and so did it. This was these people were injured. You know, why can't they just come out and say that? You know, because it's it, 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 a lot of times in this, you can you can look at this, you can look at any TV show, some investigative discovery TV show, and figure this out. Uh, it's not always as obvious as it seems. And the last thing you want to do as a prosecutor, particularly as a prosecutor, is to make statements, public statements that turn out to be wrong later on down the line, because you can bet a defense attorney, someone like me at the moment, uh, is going to use those statements against you uh, in your in court should you bring charges as a result of what happens. Mm-hmm. The logistics must be a nightmare. Oh, particularly for a situation like we saw on Thursday, absolutely, because mm-hmm. it, you know you're trying to save people's lives, you're trying to you're trying to protect the integrity of the scene, and you're also trying to control the flow of information, uh, while at the same time trying to give as much information as is appropriate to a, a media that is hounding you. I'm sure uh, that is. Yeah, that is got to be an, an an impossible situation, and I'm glad as a prosecutor, as an assistant prosecutor, assistant attorney general, as I was for 12 years, I wasn't allowed to talk to the media, so it made my job a little bit easier. Interesting. When when do people from the attorney general's office, in a case like this, or should I say, let's, let's explain this a little bit, dive even deeper. At what point does it become clear, or apparent? Who's going to actually prosecute the case? I mean, the city of Providence has its own prosecutor, correct? Uh, well, they have their own prosecutors for misdemeanors and local ordinances. So right. for cases like this, when you have major felonies, the attorney general is the prosecuting agency. So the police will make an arrest. They'll file a complaint. And that complaint will be, you know, particularly in a case like this, they're going to make an arrest and bring that person either directly to the police station to be arraigned by a justice of the peace or they're going to bring them to court if it's during court hours and then go right before a judge. But it's really, in a, in a felony case, the attorney general has exclusive prosecutorial jurisdiction. So um, in, a, in a case where there's a homicide, I can tell you from my experience in past administrations, uh, a prosecutor or prosecutors, excuse me, uh, are usually assigned pretty quickly. They get You get a call in the middle of the night when you're doing something that you want to be doing, and then you're automatically told you're going to a crime scene, you're going to uh, go view that evidence, you're going to work with the detectives and law enforcement who are investigating that, and this is going to be your case going forward if there are charges to be brought. Is there a protocol to who gets called? Is there a chain? Do you guys Are you guys on call? <laughs> Do you take turns? Uh, there's usually, uh, at least when I was working there, each department had at least one liaison to the, to the attorney general's office. So, um, I was the liaison for the town of West Warwick, uh, for most of my career in the attorney general's office. So when they had a major event, uh, I was the one that they reached out to. I reached out to the powers that be in the administrations that I worked for. And it was uh, then, you know, communications would then go back and forth between them. But um, the there was no, you know, as far as I can turn, 
could tell the the person who was assigned the case that wasn't necessarily the liaison. It was a uh, it was done on a case by case basis, depending on the complexity, the person's experience, and who had the most cases at that time, or who had the least amount of cases at that time, and they would be assigned that case, which did not always work out uh, to the benefit of the office of the attorney general. Right. Well, how so? What? Uh, what? I mean, what are the pitfalls from something like that? Uh, just because I have the least amount of cases doesn't mean I should be assigned this particular murder case. Right. Uh, you know, I, I'm. You know, me personally, I I believe I had the skills to handle those cases. I did handle those cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, not a lot of people in that office uh, have those skills uh, or have the experience in handling these complex investigations where they're going to be able to know exactly what they have to do, when they have to do it, who they have to talk to and who they have, who they have to coordinate with. And, mm-hmm. and that is just a unfortunate pitfall of working for that office because uh, there are very few lifers that go through that office simply because of the political nature of that office. You right. serve at the pleasure of the attorney general. The pay is not great. Uh, and it's uh, a situation where you're usually carrying between 150 and 200 cases at a time, and it's a and, it, and it's it, it, it's a job that not it's not cut out for everybody. Well, fairly or unfairly, is it seen often as sort of a proving ground, a a on-the-job training to eventually a, a far more or potentially lucrative career in private uh, criminal defense? Well, I will say certainly it is a training ground. If you are a person or a lawyer who wants to get their feet wet in court doing litigation, there's probably two places you want to be to start your career, the attorney general's office here in Rhode Island or the public defender's office. And you're going to get more experience doing cases, handling court matters, uh, whether they be trials, day-to-day court proceedings, than than any private attorney is ever going to get. So I certainly would agree with that statement, but uh, whether it ever turns out to be a a lucrative career move down the line or a stepping stone to a lucrative career move, uh, it has for some people, uh, for most people it doesn't. Interesting. So now of course, folks are, you know, particularly uh, since it was on the third shift, folks have worked well into the evening. From a procedural standpoint, in a situation like this, uh, and, and the scale of this is dramatically different than, say, your typical Providence act of violence in any city, for that matter. This can occur anyplace. How late into the night are they actually trying to interview folks? I, I would imagine because this was such a public act of violence on a large scale, how many, I mean, how many police officers are out there? Is it police officers? Is it attorney generals? Uh, department folks, who's out there actually interviewing people in the community? Well, the detectives, the investigators are out there. And I would imagine in a case like this, they probably were out there for a great deal of time trying to interview anybody who had relevant information about who was involved, why this happened, how it happened, and, uh, you know, anything they can gather at that time. The attorney general's office should not be uh, interviewing uh, members uh, who, members of anybody at that point, because the attorney general's office, especially uh, the people who are going to prosecute the case, uh, then turn themselves into witnesses. So if a prosecutor is talking to a witness and they tell them one thing and then later make a statement to the police department that contradicts what they said or is different than what they said, now you have an attorney general who's a witness. 
and that person is not going to be able to prosecute that case. And one mm -hmm. of the things that we were always taught as uh, prosecutors was never speak to a witness alone because you've now turned yourself into a, a witness yourself and you're, you're liable to be subpoenaed and uh, into that case to testify as a witness rather than prosecute that case. Mm -hmm. Wow. Again, unforeseen circumstances, unintended reactions to a, a single seemingly normal act, again, if you're an outsider. Uh, by the way, in situations like that, uh, again, as, as an avid movie watcher, I probably have far too high an expectation of the, if you will, the consequences of each single stage. So if someone gives two different statements, particularly if, if, if they're not contiguously given and they're ones given at that night in the height of the drama and the next day, um, it, how often in a community situation like that is witness tapering an issue and how aggressive are or is law enforcement in terms of the legal consequences of giving two vastly different statements? Well, well uh, giving vastly different statements happens all the time. Uh, unfortunately, it's not a crime necessarily to lie to law enforcement, to local law enforcement. It's a crime to lie to the federal government or federal law enforcement, but it is not necessarily uh, a crime to give a statement that is not entirely true, uh, a witness statement that is not entirely true to the local police. Uh, the only time it really becomes an issue is when you give two diametrically opposed statements under oath that are that cannot be reconciled. Then you have an issue of perjury. Uh, it's very rarely used because it's so hard to prove because it has to be material. Uh, the, the, the statement has to be a material statement um, in order for it to be, in, and under oath for in order for it to be considered to be perjury. Uh, so those are very rarely used. You know, a few years ago, a controversial line of clothing was launched. This has got to be going back 10 or 15 years. And I think it was called Stitches Get Stitches uh, or No Snitch. Um, <clears throat> from your experience, having served on both sides of the aisle, if you will, how forthcoming are community members about crimes, particularly of intense violence like this? You know, when it involves, uh, what, did they call, what did they call them, uh, groups? Uh, I think that that was the word that was originally used uh, involved in these types of situations. It's very difficult. I will tell you as, as, a, as a prosecutor and as a defense attorney, it's very difficult to get voluntary statements from uh, members of those groups or people who know members of those groups or are involved with them, family members, because of fear of retribution, fear of you know being injured. And, and it makes law enforcement's job very difficult to sort out exactly what happened and bring people to justice who deserve to be brought to justice, particularly in a case of a drive-by shooting like this, mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, to, to prosecute, it, it makes it very difficult to prosecute those cases. So it right. takes diligence and it takes, and it takes law enforcement, uh, particularly law enforcement being involved with that community and gaining the trust of those communities uh, to be able to break through that, that, uh, that so-called no snitch uh, atmosphere that you were referring to, uh, to in order to get these statements that are necessary to prosecute the violence that we're seeing. Which, of course, brings us to the central point of the evening, if you will. And by the way, this, this has been fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. By the way, you and I are doubled up on the video, so. Well, yeah. That's right. Uh, 
the community policing, as it's been interpreted, if you will, over the years by Providence and, and a variety of law enforcement organizations in the state versus what's appropriate. And, of course, that leads us into a conversation about databases, profiling, and the civil liberty, libertarian implications of all of that. I, I tend to be a bit on the extreme on this side. I am no fan of governmental databases at all, at any level. It just seems to be, um, there's, and I, I love your reaction to this, because, again, I, I'm looking at this politically as opposed to the reality of trying to, trying to minimize violence on the streets of a, of a, of a city in turmoil. Um, and from my position as, quote-unquote, station management here, it's a city that is run by a feckless mayor. It's, it's rudderless. Uh, police department at times seems to be out of control. So when I look at those situations and I look at the history of the, the jump-out boys and I look at the level of violence that's become from Providence police officers to pe- members of the community, uh, and, and I look at the re- overreaction in many cases towards peaceful civil disobedience, I see no due process in getting it on or off these lists. I see these lists having serious implications for the civil rights of the individuals. And I don't see these corresponding lists happening in areas of great wealth and in the, where the skin tone's a little bit lighter. I, you know, I just have a real issue with personally and politically with the, how policing is done in the city. On the other hand, we have to stop this violence. Where do you come down? And, and just, you know, full disclosure, you are a candidate to be the Attorney General of the State of Rhode Island. How do you balance community policing, which if you're in Providence, translates into stop and frisk, or at least it did, whereas community policing, and I'm, I'm using this, you know, I'm being painted with a broad brush here, I should say, in EG or Cumberland or, or wherever, or Narragansett, is officer-friendly, maybe being on a bicycle, as opposed to in the cruiser, or officer friendly being in the cruiser and stopping and buying ice cream for the kids, and you know occasionally doing walkthroughs as opposed to drive-throughs. Two different realities, two forms of community policing. What has to happen in a city like Providence? Where's the balance? You know, I you know I, I don't want to paint anybody with a broad brush. You know, there are definitely improvements that need to be made uh, as far as the love, the type of policing that's done in Providence. Uh, I think there are a lot of good officers there, and unfortunately, we've seen a lot of bad situations as well. Uh, the, the, what needs to be done is I think that the officers that are, being, that are actually out there in the community, who are, are actually wanting to get to know the members of the community and create a trust with them, they have to be authentic about it. It can't be just because, you know, this is what this was my assignment. This is what our boss told us we have to do. This is what the attorney general told us we have to do so we can, you know, look friendly to everybody. We're still keeping our still same uh, databases of who's in a gang, you know, who's been this and who we've had contact with over the years and, you know, who we're going to who we're going to go to if, if so and so gets shot next week. Um, so, I mean, I think a lot of the problems is that the community finds uh, these outreach attempts, I'll say. Uh, by many of the law enforcement community to be inauthentic, and they don't trust it, and I and I don't and I don't blame a lot of them for seeing that because these lists that you talk about they do exist, 
and uh, they don't only exist in the form of um, you know racial uh, context. They exist in other forms as well. They exist in forms of um, mental health context, and I think that's a, a situation that I've seen uh, repeatedly in my in, in my areas where I practice a lot. Uh, is that you know any any welfare check that's ever been done anywhere in the state of Rhode Island, there are cross agency checks that they can do, the police departments can do, and they've come up with uh, people who've had multiple interactions with police. Uh, just simply because of mental health problems. And, and, and these are people who are being focused on as well, uh, as well as the people who are being potentially racially profiled. So I, I don't disagree with you, Pat, I, I, you know, that there are problems uh, in, in policing that have not been fixed, uh, not only here in Providence, but across the, across the country, but do have the potential to be fixed if we had strong leadership. Uh, mm -hmm. We cannot, uh, you know, I, I do, I, I will say directly, we cannot have a system where we're out there saying defund the police and replace it with, uh, you know, mental health professionals, uh, therapists, and, uh, you know, whatnot. It's just not going to work. We're going to be in a situation where what we see in Minneapolis, what we see in Los Angeles, what we see in San Francisco, it's it, it's just not a situation where the police have any backing and it's going to be pretty much every man and woman for themselves. Uh, we need to have a strong leadership that will support the police when they do a good job and also hold them accountable when they're not doing a good job. And, uh, and unfortunately, politics of the situation have taken both sides to the extreme of that. We have the extreme right, which has said, you know, you know, rule of law, rule of law, rule of law, lock them all up. We have the extreme left, which is saying de defund the police. That there are, there's a, there's a middle ground there. And, and if we can put our politics aside and, and, and actually have a, a rational dialogue about that, I think we can accomplish both goals that you talked about, uh, which is, stopping this senseless violence, which absolutely has to be done, and also have responsible policing. Is it possible to rethink, and I'm putting you a little bit on the spot here, but uh, someone called this spitballing, just kind of throwing out some ideas, right? From a p political, theoretical perspective, I envision policing as being far more bottom-up from the community as opposed to what's evolved into militaristic hierarchical structures where you've got at least a perception, fair or unfair, the perception that law enforcement is an organization actively pursuing and, 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 and winning with criminality. And I'm talking about the militarization of it, the 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 quick draw response that we saw. Um, you know, I always go back to the BLM, Black Lives Matter uh, issues last year. I marched in the, the main Black Lives Matter march. There was no violence anywhere, and there were thousands and thousands of people there. Yet days beforehand, week, weeks beforehand, there was a outbreak of violence, and the political structure in the city and the state implied that that was directly from the BIPOC community. When, in fact, once prosecutions occurred, 
many of them were from out of town uh, and folks who of, of, of multiracial backgrounds who, quite frankly, were taking advantage of a situation that they weren't political at all. And in fact, knowing personally a, a number of leaders from a variety of different protest groups in this town, many of them work aggressively to minimize, if not eliminate, the threat of violence for a number of reasons. Some ethical, some practical, quite frankly. Yet, in a handful of the protests that directly uh, occurred after that principal one, you had a highly militaristic police presence, both at the State House and around the Providence Safety Complex, whereas when folks who are right of center protested, you did not have that. Now, that police presence has been modified greatly in the last six months or so because there has been no systemic violence generated by these, these protests. So people react to that. You know, there was, there, was, there was intense reaction to that when you saw, I think the term is battle-rattle-ready troops, if you will, on the Statehouse for, in one case, about five or 600 teenagers. And then, uh, again, during that same time period, no one at all for folks who were right of center and very, very white. So is it a long, long run-up to, if you will, a simple question? Am I being Pollyannish by thinking that I can envision a community where the individual community dictates how policing is run, or are we too far past? Is that ship sailed? And are we always going to be held hostage by this overarching safety complex bureaucracy, um, you name it? Uh, it uh, again, you've got people who don't even live in that community who are running essentially, arm, essentially an army. Uh, how do we move away from that in the real world, not just in Pat's, you know, Pat's mind? I think I think better training is a, a better training for the police is is a is a big step that would be able to be taken. But I think they have to react to what they're seeing on the ground. Now, I'm not saying that at every BLM protest or every right wing protest, there needs to be some sort of militaristic presence there. That's obviously over the top, especially in situations where there is no violence. Um, you know, and, and I think that the initial reaction that we saw was probably uh, related to the destruction that we saw at the Providence Place Mall and the area around it prior to the march I think you're talking about. Um, and, I, and perhaps that was an overreaction. I, I'm, I'm not sure I wasn't there. Uh, I, but I don't, I, I don't generally don't myself don't go to any of the protests on either side because I don't, I find it to be counterproductive for myself, but mm -hmm. it's a, it's, it's a situation uh, that uh, I do think you need to have the police being more ground up as opposed to top down. Uh, you know, they shouldn't be simply going out there, getting their orders from their superiors and then going out there and you know, looking to see if they can follow through with those orders. Uh, 
we need to have people on the ground who know the leaders in the community, know who the people are, who are the good people, know who are the troublemakers. And, and, it's, and it's tough sometimes. It's not readily apparent. As you mentioned, I, I looked it up when it happens. A lot of the people who were instigators or who were violent actors uh, were from out of town, who were taking advantage of a situation where they could just kind of swoop into this group that was uh, out there protesting and make it look like that the entire protest was a riot. Uh, and that wasn't necessarily the case. Well, I, I guess we can set the stage for future conversations. And one of them would be, what are the steps necessary to turn that into a reality? Again, has, has the ship on a practical level sailed? So when I talk about defunding the police, I, I'm looking for really a, a radical reinvention of the police. It's naive to expect that you can't have any type of armed force ready to react to acts of extreme violence like we saw the other night. And it's, I, I for sheer the, the prospect of property rights, one has to have some type of active organization that can respond to things like theft, domestic violence, uh, abuse. You have to. But at the same time, how do we wrest control away from, again, a, you know, there, there's litigation right now ongoing with the Providence Police Academy about a recruit from about a year and a half, two years ago, a young, a young man of color from the streets, college graduate, always wanted to be a policeman. And the acts of harassment that are alleged in that lawsuit are, are relatively extreme. And he was drummed out of the police academy after violence. And it wasn't from him. So that litigation is ongoing. And we've seen time after case after case after case of excessive force used in the city of Providence. And the city of Providence is, is had to pay and the taxpayers have had to pay. And of course, you've got the, the spiritual implications of people being beaten by those who they expect to be protected by. Um, I guess if, if we can cover just one more set of landmines before this evening is over, you know, there, there, there are some powerful political issues involved in policing in the community right now. Uh, you know, obviously, I think every human being who's capable of empathy is, is against chokeholds. But at the same time, the notion that civil asset forfeiture can occur and that police at this point in time under the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights, with only with the exception to being in extreme conditions, bear none of the civil liability for actions. Uh, from your perspective, should there be far greater controls on civil asset forfeiture in fact, should it be eliminated? And should there be liability, personal, much like a nurse or a doctor, by the way, nurses or doctors have to buy insurance. If they don't have insurance against bad things, they doing bad things, well, they don't get to practice. Should police have to have some type of liability insurance? What, what are your thoughts generally on that? Well, I think there certainly can be changes to the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights. Uh, most states don't even have it. Uh, there, are, I think it's a minority of states that actually have a law enforcement uh, officer's bill of rights. 
So, I mean, I think that there is ways to control uh, police to, uh, police officers who have been uh, known to be or have been accused, credibly accused of uh, misconduct. And it, it shouldn't be that they get to go sit home and get paid for however long it takes to get their case through the uh, the Bill of Rights system and then the courts and then whatever it is. Um, it, it's it's to me, I understand the frustration with that because uh, a lot of these things have been um, a lot of these situations where the Bill of Rights has been, um, I don't know if I would say taken advantage of, but uh, certainly used to the officer's benefit when maybe quicker action could have been taken um, has not happened. So I think there needs to be a, a serious look at that as far as what does the department or does a certain official get to make a call that overrides the Bill of Rights, at least temporarily, while the investigation plays out or the charges play out? And then at that point, uh, you know, the system takes over and you get your everybody gets due process at that point. But, um, you know, you do have to balance that along with the fact of reality, just like you said, that, you know, law enforcement is always going to have complaints against them. Uh, just by the very nature of their job. Uh, they're always going to be people who want to make complaints. They're always going to be people who want to get law enforcement in trouble uh, because uh, there's, an, there's sometimes there's always going to be an antagonistic relationship. So there has to be some protection in place. Not every complaint can lead to an immediate suspension without pay. Uh, so there really has to be a breakdown of um, what is going to be the line so to speak, uh, the line that we're going to say, this allegation, if credible, um, is going to lead to an immediate, you're off, you're off duty, you're not getting paid, and this is go, there's going to be a long and serious investigation into it, versus, all right, there's been an allegation of misconduct, you know, maybe you were uh, you treated somebody a little bit rude, or you you know you gave you gave you gave them a hard time that day. So we're not gonna you know we're not gonna suspend you without pay, but you're gonna go on desk duty for the next month or something along those lines. Right. So I mean, it, it really the, the the devil is in the details, Pat. And and you know I'd be I'd be very hesitant to to uh, endorse uh, a complete uh, overhaul of the law enforcement bill of rights without seeing the actual details of it. Right. No, understood. Understood. I mean, we're we're talking ve and again, painting with a broad brush would probably be the operative term for everything we've talked about this evening. Uh, final thought, and 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 I believe next week we're going to try and have a conversation about the recent Supreme Court case, uh, the nine to zero win that involved the case in Rhode Island. But with regard to, to tonight's conversation. Civil asset forfeiture, is that something you've seen happen in Providence? And again, without alluding to a specific case, if it has, what has it, what type of actor, what have been the general circumstances? So civil asset forfeiture on the state level is actually a lot harder to accomplish than it is on the federal level. Uh, there's, uh, to my knowledge, there's one assistant attorney general who is handles the civil forfeiture matters. And uh, all of them have to go through the attorney general's office when it comes with a legal civil forfeiture, I should say, should have to go through the attorney general's office. And generally, when it involves crime, uh, even if there's not one charged, uh, 
the civil, there are only certain types of crime that civil asset forfeiture uh, can come into play. So simple possession charges, uh, possession of controlled substance charges, civil asset forfeiture is not going to come into play. Um, but uh, when, it, when it doesn't involve crime, there needs to be a very strict uh, over, oversight of how civil forfeiture, civil asset forfeiture is taken into account. Um, it, it, I, to my experience, it always was because, you know, I wasn't the one who was doing that when I was at the attorney general's office, but the person who was had the office right next to me. And if I had a question about, you know, so-and-so sees 10,000, you know, the police department sees $10,000 from so-and-so, but they haven't been charged with the crime yet. Are you going forward with the civil forfeiture action? There were a lot of check boxes that had to be checked. Uh, by that by that prosecutor before that was able to before that was able to happen. Do I think it should be taken totally off the table? No, I don't because you can there are definitely times where you can find uh, you can link assets to clear criminality and uh, people should not profit from clear criminality. Right. Uh, however, the federal the the, the federal uh, Civil forfeiture is much broader, to my understanding, and I, to my understanding, there is very little oversight, uh, very little meaningful oversight of how that is handled, and that is definitely a tool that has been used by the federal government to, um, I would say, gain leverage over certain individuals to get them to either flip uh, in a criminal case or or a major major civil case, or um, get them to plead guilty to some sort of criminal offense uh, with the with the carrot kind of the carrot on the stick mode, saying you know we'll we'll give you back some of your property, but you're going to plead guilty to this crime and uh, not make us go through the, the the steps of going through trial. Right. In, in New York State, for a number of years, and I believe it's still in place, there was something called the Son of Sam law. Are you familiar with that? Uh, I mean, I'm vaguely familiar with the concept, the, yes. So under the Son of Sam law, because I'm talking about Sam Berkowitz, the Son of Sam killer, uh, and, and as memory holds me, the law was created that no one could profit, if you will, from an overt act of illegality, uh, particularly in the case of violence. So because the fear was that someone would come along and do a book, uh, or he would do a book and make probably a whole lot of money, uh, it, it, is that is that uh, can you can you envision something like that? Do any uh, statutes exist like that here in Rhode Island? I mean, the I don't, as far as publicity, I'm not aware of a publicity statute like a Son of Sam statute in Rhode Island that exists. Well, in this case, in this case, um, literally write a book and make a couple million dollars off of, or in this case, someone write. Let's just say hypothetically, someone writes a book one of the protagonists, if you will, of Thursday's Nightmare, uh, writes a book about it and, I don't know, gets an advance of a hundred or 200000 you know, my life and the gangs on the west side. From your perspective, should there be statutes against that? Uh, I certainly don't think people should profit off uh, other people's misery or, or committing crime. Um, do I think that there should be statutes against that? My personal opinion is, Yes, if you that kind of that kind of violence, uh, that kind of crime that has caused uh, many families, I am sure 
many, you know, a large portion of the community to fear going outside their home. Uh, for this person to be able to go out and write a book and make hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars uh, as a result of just being a, uh, a violent criminal, I don't think that's right. Uh, I, I don't know that that I don't know that that falls under civil forfeiture, but uh, it, it, it would it would certainly strike me as distasteful. And um, you know, I, I see you know I, I don't know how much he's profiting, but uh, you know, certainly someone like a an O.J. Simpson, even though he was found not guilty but civilly liable, uh, you know, he's written plenty of books. I don't know how much he's getting out of it since there's that large unpaid civil judgment he has against him for the wrongful death. Nicole Brown Simpson and uh, Ron uh, and Ron Goldman, but um, you know, to me, it, it's distasteful. I don't. I think it incentivizes people to, um, you know, perhaps push the limits more than what they need to be pushing uh, sometimes. And you know, I, I don't think anybody who goes out and commits a heinous act of violence and leaving families, uh, uh, leaving families without their loved ones putting communities in terror should be, uh, should be, should be gaining from that. Well, listen, thank you for a fascinating conversation tonight. Technical problems aside, I feel badly because Wednesday night seems to be, uh, well, that's, that's because station man, this is the perfect example of what happens when, when management is expected to actually do anything uh, of that requires the real <laughs> skill of the team, the, the, the handful of team members that we've got here. Um, but I, we are going to, we had just signed up with the podcast service. Uh, this seems tonight to be a perfect time to, to put this to podcasts, and this is the perfect conversation to do it so, uh, do so. So tomorrow on the page, will be, this will be listed as a Facebook uh, a page. There will be a YouTube video, and I think it's worthy of a podcast as well that so folks can, again, get the perspective of not just a, a bloviating talking head. You know anyone like that? Uh, but someone I, who I don't know anybody. You don't know anybody like that. <laughs> someone who's <laughs> entranced by the sound of their own voice so much so that they seem to use it constantly. Yes, uh, but you know clearly there's a whole lot of real world information here that we can use to judge, to be informed and to judge, and that's that's the goal of this network. So this is your show. Uh, why don't you take us out and uh, and, and and wish folks well. Absolutely, Pat, and I really appreciate you having this conversation with me tonight, and and I hope we can continue it, like you said, is because there are a lot of people who want to know uh, just what I think, where I'm come from, and uh, where I stand on a lot of these situations. And I hope I can continue to do that going forward uh, on Wednesday nights when we can do this and talk about real world issues, real world legal issues, political issues, whatever comes to mind and whatever is affecting us here in Rhode Island. And I'd like to do it in a way that brings us law above politics. And I appreciate everybody who has joined us tonight, uh, listen, uh, listening to both of us talk about uh, issues that have affected everybody here in Rhode Island uh, across this uh, across the state in Providence and everywhere else this past weekend. Hopefully it doesn't continue. Uh, thank you again for joining us. You can reach me, Chaz Kalenda, at Inman and Torgy, uh, the law firm of Inman and Torgy in Coventry, Rhode Island, 401-823-9200. Uh, as Pat mentioned, I'm a candidate to be the attorney general in 2022. So feel free to reach out to me on my website at chas, C-H-A-S, the number four, A-G.com. 
I'm also on Facebook and Twitter uh, with uh, with my page for the Attorney General, and I'm uh, accessible to anybody who wants to reach me to answer further questions and talk more of a little bit about what we've been talking about tonight. So again, thank you very much for joining us on Chaz Kalinda, Attorney at Law, Episode 6, and I hope to see you again on a future episode. Good night, folks. <laughs>